and we're we're recording episode 567 with Roger Williams, author of my favorite book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. Roger and I have all of August was hectic, and then we got back on our regularly scheduled programming for one day, and then Roger was rude. Two enough, weeks ago, Roger was rude enough to move into the path of a hurricane, like a like a self-aggrandizing, <laughs> egocentric douchebag that he is. And uh, Roger's wearing a fantastic shirt, which you can find in the TPC merch store that I will put in the description, as always, about Bob Lazar and some UFOs and shit. But um, and. Mm-hmm. I am wearing some TBC merch of James Jesus Angleton, head of CIA counterintelligence, who probably killed JFK. And uh, <laughs> But as always, this is about as normal as a podcast beginning gets. I've told Roger I feel sick as shit, so if you see me getting up out of this chair during the podcast, I'm either going to piss or shit or change the thermostat because I feel like dog shit. But a lot worse. Pro- did you see? Did you see yesterday... Uh, I didn't even know this was a thing happening until yesterday. That there's supposed to be like a protest at the Capitol, something about January. Yeah, 6th. like 200 people showed up. I had no idea that. this was even gonna be a thing. Like, I legitimately didn't even. I was just looking at like Twitter, and I was like, "What are all these like videos of fire people at the Capitol?" I didn't even know. Yeah, and that was supposed to be Jan Six Mark Two, and it turned out to be like Jan Six Mark Fizzle. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it was. I didn't even know what it was, and I was like, "What is this?" And I saw like all the stormtrooper like Capitol Police, yeah. and I'm like, "Well, you well, know." Lot, I'm like, "I get it." A sure. lot of the actual right wing people were saying it was a false flag well, and not to well, go. Well, and, uh, there's a picture. So. There, well, actually, some guy got arrested because he had a gun, and you can see someone videotaping it. And you can, as the police are arresting him, they're starting to realize he's undercover FBI. And they're like, yeah. oh. And then there's this other group. There's this picture. There's this picture. Roger, you know what the term glowy is? Glowy refers to uh, like an agent provocateur. Oh, okay. it'd be like if, It'd be yeah. like you and I are hanging out talking about Biden and some guy comes over who probably looks like me, super clean cut. And he's like, huh, <laughs> I, isn't that the truth? <laughs> we should probably kill him, right? And, you know, you're like, what? you're like, what the f- what? And there's so everyone was like, there's this picture of these like five guys at, at this rally. Clean cut. They've all got the same uh, Ray-Bans on. They all have bulges on their right hip where there's clearly a gun. And uh, they're all in like matching like bro uniforms. And there's a picture. And like what the one of the guys is looking at the person taking the picture and the rest are kind of standing there. And like someone put them, somebody like outlined it in like highlighter green, like glowies. And it's like, how do you do, fellow patriots? Like, <laughs> where's the riot taking place? Am I right? And you just look at it and you're like, this is the saddest. The only thing sadder than the people are going are like the poor, like young guys on the totem pole at the FBI who were tasked to go there. They're, and you're just looking at it and you're like, you're like, what are we doing? Is this where we are? But. That's about sad to say. Just, just insanity, absolute insanity. So, uh, but yeah, on that yep. note, man, it's only gonna be a matter of time until they just start replacing all their shit with Boston Dynamics robots. I mean, that's the that's, that's the end. <laughs> they game. Are, that's the end game. They, they yeah. They, well, they already had to call one of them back because everyone uh, threw their hands up in outrage. Yeah. Uh, I think the one they deployed in New York, maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, this yeah. is this is COVID. Because that's totally not nightmare fuel. 
headless, this headless dog-like robot. Yeah, wait until you see one, and it, wait until you see one, and it's got the fucking YouTube logo on it, and it knocks on your door to inform you that you have a strike, and it, as it scans you an IR, you're, you get your outline. YouTuber one nine nine four zero four. You're just like, hello, yeah. You just and mm-hmm. the third strike will be a fucking a YouTube drone doing a holding yeah. pattern about twenty thousand feet above your head with a Hellfire missile, and you don't just get or a thermonuclear warhead. Or a we're all about thermonuclear warheads, aren't hey, we? <laughs> we're, we're above them, Roger. Roger, tell everyone where they can get your book because I'm already gonna go turn the air conditioner on. All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, as Tommy said, his favorite book is my book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. And if you would like a paper copy, uh, I encourage you, instead of going to Amazon, uh, please go to Lulu, L-U-L-U dot com, and search for it there. Uh, they are the publisher of Origin. And the price will be the same uh, because of the contractual obligations that were necessary in order to make it available through the book chain and through marketers like Amazon. But if you order it from Lulu, they give me the share of the money that normally goes to Amazon and the other booksellers. So it ends up being like $6 instead of a buck 50. So same for you. It's a little less convenient, I know, because you can't use your Prime account and get the shipping and all. But it's, uh, you know, if you think about it, thing we're thinking about. Um, that's basically that. Uh, I can tell Tommy's a bit under the weather. I've been a bit under the weather. I got hit by a hurricane uh, while I was under the weather. So it's been an interesting couple of months. And, uh, of course, we've done, like, one podcast a couple of weeks ago instead of doing one a week. And uh, uh, his other regular Sunday podcaster, Dale... <laughs> came to New Orleans to do help us with security. Oh, yeah. By the way, is Dale, is Dale back yet, or is he still down here? I have no or idea. Do you, do you know? I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, Dale was uh, doing security at some, I think, I guess, shopping yeah. complex or something where they were like, fuck looters, and they hired yeah. Dale, which is like <laughs> using a nuclear bomb to get rid of termites. So when, when, you, when you see him again, tell him that your other guy from New Orleans said thank you for coming down to help us I because will. I will. we needed all the help we could get. I, I, I will. Uh, but you know what I feel bad for? The poor motherfucker that decided to loot and got taken down by <laughs> Dale. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm sure just, they'll find the body one day. No, they won't. Because <laughs> this is why Dale does what Dale does, because they won't find it. There's just some poor fuck that went to grab a flat screen and yeah, and they and he just saw like a little red light on like night vision goggles, and you just see Dale, just one shot. Dale, you weren't supposed to kill him; you're supposed to just arrest him. <laughs> yeah, but uh, hey. you know, half of me, half of me thinks Dale was never even in New Orleans. Part of me was I had I had a dream, and I was thinking about it, and I was like. You know, well, why would Dale tell me? It's, what What does it matter? You know, I'm not a president. Why are you, you know, and it's like, well, you know, Dale does make weekly appearances on this podcast. And if anyone ever wanted to look back and try to connect dots and they'd say, oh, Dale's missing for a month. Yeah. Was Dale? Well, it's a perfectly reasonable private security gig. Or, I mean, for someone in his reign uh, or he has work. or he has Putin in crosshairs. I mean, both are 
both are <laughs> equally plausible with Dale. I mean, Dale could have very well been in Beijing, covered in some invisibility fucking cloak from DARPA. <laughs> or he could have been in New Orleans. Like That could have been the truth, too. Or maybe Dale was just like, I'm so tired of this fucking podcast. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> fuck off. Hey, dude, I'm in New Orleans. But, um, yeah, so uh, Roger and I are going to, I don't even, oh, we're doing a reading, obviously, yeah. Yeah, get his book. Yeah, we, we, prime we keep forgetting to do that. I've been jonesing to read you these uh, this next series, but you know, for like two months because I think you're going to really like them. And uh, you know, we keep. Uh, I think this is going to be the fourth curators reading for you, so it'll be like curators for uh, when you title the episode. But this is going to be. I think. Let me check here. Part 17, as it was originally published on Reddit. Okay. And uh, let me rearrange my windows here. So you go here and the source material comes over here where I can see it. I emailed I emailed the office of President Trump this morning. It was just like, hey, will you come on my podcast? I'm getting banned from every platform. I figure maybe that'll make a splash. I mean, I won't. I mean, I won't get a response. You can identify. Hey, man. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's hey. You know what? Listen, dog. Hey, we were both in D.C. on January 6th. We both got banned from YouTube. I mean, we're blood brothers now. You know, I probably won't hear. You're practically that. the president. I am practically the president. Thank you. I'm glad you. Thank you, Roger. Because you know, I was gonna have to dance around to that point, but Roger cut straight through the bullshit. I'm basically the president, which, uh, yeah. All right, let's and, do this shit. All right. So, uh, as, as we recall, cause it's been a little while. So we have humans, uh, have invented full drive, which allows us to basically teleport to other stars. We have, uh, retrofitted a couple of airplanes so that we can fly out of the atmosphere, teleport to some other place, generally fall through the gravity. Well, of a heavy planet to match velocity because stars are all going in different directions and all. And uh, then uh, fly down through the atmosphere of our destination to the ground. And what we found out is that there is a network of worlds that were all created by this race called curators. Uh, We don't know very much about them, except that uh, one of them is a friend of our protagonists. And, uh, what we have found is that because we were not curated, for some reason, the curators decided not to give us the gifts they gave their other children. We had to do it ourselves the hard way. And that means that our tech is better because it turns out the other curated species, their fold ships have really stupidly large fold drives made of nanites and they can't land them. They can't get to the ground without ground support. We are the only race in the galaxy that can go to an undeveloped world and get to the ground. This has been a situation for literally billions of years because the curators have been doing this for like 7 billion years. Uh, And they created our world. They created the earth they created the situation where the earth has stabilized rotation it has a stabilizing moon uh it's at the right distance everything basically 
The solar system was geoengineered, as were about 10 million other solar systems in the galaxy, about a million of which have curated intelligent species on them, which the curators have, to a certain extent, allowed to evolve on their own. And to a certain extent, they've been guided by the curators, uh, except for us. They decided we would probably wipe ourselves out. And so they just sort of left us to do that, and we didn't cooperate. So this is part 17, as it was originally published on Reddit, four years after our last reading. Our human form curator became a regular visitor to our house, particularly after Emma and I got married. He revealed himself to the director, who in turn directed us to be his liaison with our species and to keep it all very quiet. As far as anyone else knew, he was a human engineer who occasionally did contract work for projects at the military base. There were now thousands of raiders permanently living on Earth and hundreds of humans on Kattegat and its new colonies. While Em and I weren't the first human couple to exchange vows on another world, the Raiders did do, offer us the opportunity to do it further from the home than anyone else would for a while on their newest and most distant colony. Being undeveloped, it offered us a honeymoon of exploring and sleeping beneath the stars. Not too different from our experience when we first met the Raiders on the occasion of their surprise attack. But now the Raiders and humans were allies and trading partners, and our alliance was considered strong by both sides. The rest of the galaxy was mostly unthrilled, and there was a sigh of relief on the other side of the galaxy that the raiders didn't seem inclined to do much raiding anymore now that they had colonies. A few races had expressed displeasure that they were getting gifts of technology from us humans that nobody else enjoyed, and one race that in particular spun that feeling to white-hot hatred was the civilians, who now blamed themselves for discovering us and bringing us into the galactic community at all. The Raiders had partially repaid us for our generosity with samples of gravity plating, but three years of research had made little progress toward understanding how it worked. Unlike the fold drive, which all developed races mostly understood, all the Raiders or anybody else really knew about gravity plating was that certain nanites made it work. So part of our trade was components and raw materials for nanite-based gravity plating. We were still nervous about setting up nanite-based manufacturing on Earth where it might fall into unreliable hands. Our curator knocked precisely at eight on Friday as he'd been doing for over two years. It's easy to be punctual when you can instantly transport yourself to any place on Earth, or for that matter, on numerous other inhabited worlds orbiting other stars. I received a communication today, he said as M sat out dinner. One of our agents on Seville has been observing a construction project they are undertaking in orbit. It is unusually large for something that hasn't been announced to the general population. He used his hand to project an image on the wall of our dining room. It shifted, indicating progress over time. We are fairly sure that this first stage is full drive, he said. But look what it is now becoming. The structure built around the full drive was barely larger than the full drive and its power source together. It had no windows or obvious bays. It was a tiny fraction of the size of any alien fold ship we'd ever seen, though still larger than most human fold ships. Yet it was taking on the appearance of completion. 
it didn't seem that they were planning to build in any bigger. They are making two of these. Sorry about the quality of the images, but even with our technology, these are still telescopic images from the ground. I wish P were here, M said. I'd have an interesting question to ask her about nanite-based fold drives. The curator smiled. Who do you think makes those drives possible? I can probably answer your question. The reason these fold drives can't be remotely controlled is that they have to be carefully calibrated to set the range and aperture, right? Yes, you've automated those functions, but none of our other children have managed to do that. But if you wanted to deliberately fold a world into its sun, you just massively detune it, right? You could automate that. The thought had occurred to us, he said, but we considered it so monstrous that we emmed over the telephone and hit the top speed dial setting. Code Turnery Burn Omaha. Get him online now, M said a few moments later. Director, is the fold span limiter operating? Pause. Make sure it's online and stays online. This is the most important thing ever. I'll explain in a bit. Surely you don't think they would really. Those aren't ships, M said very definitely. Those are planet killers. If you're right, it would be unfortunate. M poured wine all around. Sure, I hope I'm wrong, M said, but I don't think I am. Remember, I have devoted my life to the arts of war, and Jay and I have been, have seen what a full drive can do firsthand. Humans may not have been in space very long, but we've been waging war at sea for centuries, and those aren't ships or even submarines. Those are torpedoes. Do the civilians know that we have the fold span limiter, I asked, genuinely not being in the loop? Not by us, M said, and looked at the curator. I'm pretty sure they don't know, he said. But I only found out about this business a couple of months ago. Our agent on Seville didn't realize the potential implications until then. This is still a very large project involving transport of a lot of mass to orbit. The nanite fold drive itself is a huge solid mass, and its construction is much of the difficulty of building even a normal-scale fold ship. To hide something on this scale from the local population is very hard. Our agent would have missed it if we didn't have a superior ability to detect fold activity. The question is, how close are these things to completion? We talked some more, and then the curator sat straight up. I have just received a communication from our agent on Seville. The artifacts have disappeared, coincident with the unannounced departure of their fold ship rate of change, which was supposedly being refitted. That's the submarine. M said as she hit speed dial again. Turnery burn, Omaha. Yeah, I know. It's me again. Director, they're on their way. Is there any unusual fold activity in the solar system? Pause. Okay, we'll be there as soon as possible. What? An alien fold ship just folded into the Oort cloud. Looks like it's positioning to use Uranus as for velocity adjustment. We need to get to the base. I can help with that, the curator said. Hold hands and stand close to me. We did as instructed. You might want to close your eyes. We did, and when we opened them, we were all at the base in a vacant office near the directors. Do what you have to do, the curator said. I'll be learning what I can. I'll be in touch. And he disappeared. I thought you were at home, 
the director said when we burst into his office. We were about a minute ago. Tonight is our meeting with you-know-who, remember? Okay, this better be good. Fortunately, the curator had flashed his images over to M's phone. There was an incoming phone call. They're at Uranus. Looks like they are aiming for low Earth orbit at about an hour and a half. How can you tell it's LEO, I asked. Why would they be bothering matching Bosley at all? We can tell the vector they're choosing to fall on pretty accurately. We're not just sensing from Earth. We have fold monitors at all the gas giants. And this is a very expensive weapon for them to make, M added. They won't take a chance on it misfiring during a short flyby if they don't have to. They put a lot of work into this thing. We have to make sure that work comes to nothing. We've got an hour and a half to figure out what to do. Go blast them, one of the assistants said. They almost certainly have the sunlight cannon themselves now, M said, and their ships are a lot better shielded than ours by their sheer mass. Do nothing, I said. Everyone looked at me. We have the span limiter, and they don't know we have it. They'll drop their torpedo and run, thinking it will obliterate us a few seconds later. Then we go up and carve the torpedo up at our leisure. I think this is the best strategy, the director said, and M nodded. It's also likely to confuse the attackers because they won't know why their weapon didn't work. So an hour and a half later, we were all still in place when the civilian fold ship rate of change dropped its payload into a stable polar orbit around the Earth and then folded off toward, as far as we could tell, nowhere. Seconds later, a klaxon sounded. Span limiter activity, one of the assistants shouted. What happens when the span limiter limits one of these things, I asked them. It depends on the fold geometry of the Detune drive. It could fold itself into the sun, or it could just, the fold could just fail. After a few moments, the klaxon blew again. It's still up there, and it's retrying. Well, we can't just leave the fucking thing up there, the director said. Any ideas? It's probably otherwise unmanned and unarmed. I can take Grasshopper and blast it to shreds. Those shreds will still be the heaviest things that ever re-entered from orbit eventually. They could wipe out a city or start a tsunami. Well, we have the ability to manually adjust the fold aperture radius now. Use Grasshopper to fold the whole damn thing back to the Oort cloud. The radius of operation of the span limiter is only about an AU. You fold it too far away from Earth, it'll fold itself and whatever folded it away into the sun, along with who knows what else. Plus, we can't be sure how its detuned fold attempts would affect a calibrated fold. Maybe we're overthinking this a bit, I said. Don't we still have hydrogen bombs? The thing is less than 50 meters across. We should be able to vaporize it. The director just looked at a guy in uniform who immediately said, on it. Sir, there's another problem, M said. The civilians built two of these damn things. And you think you know what they're going to do with the other one? I would bet a huge pile of money it's on its way to Kattegat. Our erstwhile allies. Part 18. The Grasshopper was deemed an inadequate vehicle for our mission to save Kattegat. Since we were going to war, we needed something tough, maneuverable, and mechanically simple, with room for a possible payload. So we were assigned to the C-130-based mail service. 
it had essentially been converted to live up to its name doing package deliveries to the colonies. But it was armed with the sunlight cannon, and its full drive had been calibrated for long-range service by aligning it with grasshoppers. Instead of a chemical rocket RCS, it sported a new microfold sunlight reaction system, which used water superheated by the same process as the power generators and the sunlight cannon to produce significant thrust and impulse. It was a cargo model with a large cargo area and the usual C-130 big rear door. And when we got to it, we found a uniformed Air Force captain waiting for us by a rather provocative object, which was mounted in the cargo hold for transport. Is that what it looks like? M asked incredulously. It was about six feet long and conical, tapering from a base about half a meter across to a rounded tip. Of course, it's your hydrogen bomb, to be precise, a W88 ICBM reentry vehicle with a yield of about 500 kilotons. We've hotwired this one for you with a simple timer to bypass the permissive action link, which I've been instructed to show you how to use. Congratulations, you two are now a nuclear power. And everyone is cool with this? Dr. J, I believe you suggested this yourself, and the president has signed off on it. We are committed to doing everything we can to prevent the destruction of any inhabited world, not just Earth. As he was showing us how to program the bomb timer, the curator showed up. I've been told you're cleared for everything, our instructor said without elaboration, and he continued our instruction. I don't know what we're supposed to do with it. We have no way to launch it on an intercept course without being detected and evaded and maybe destroyed in the process. That much is correct, the curator said. We are now certain the rate of change is armed with a primitive version of your sunlight cannon, and due to its heavier construction, you would not prevail in a sunlight cannon battle. If you get much closer than an astronomical unit to them via your full drive, they will detect your presence and be able to either engage your fleet. Then, like I said, what are we supposed to do with this? My people may be able to give you some assistance. Take this. He offered us what looked like for all the world like a locket. When you get within a couple of light years of Cataket and your relative velocity is less than 50 kilometers per second, your calibrated full drive should be capable of doing that from Neptune in one fold. Open this and press the button. This will alert our agent on Cataget of your arrival. We're setting up a strategy as you fly. Ten minutes later, we were in the air. Thirty minutes later, we were falling toward Neptune. And seven hours later, M opened the locket and pressed the button. Within moments, we were joined by a raider. But when this raider spoke, its translator just put out English without any raider growling to translate. We have met before, she said. I am one who walks among our children. You were watching over us on our last visit to Kattegat, M said. Exactly. This is quite a situation. We would resolve it ourselves, but long ago we gave up the building of ships, and so while our command of the fold is very accurate, we have become a bit limited in the ability to fold larger objects and dependent on folding to an inhabitable space. Thank you for bringing one. Hey, it's the least we could do, I said. How are we going to do this? We are tracking the rate of change as it approaches. It has to use inhabited worlds as waypoints, and we walk among our children with our full detectors on all of those worlds. We anticipate it to arrive here in about another eight hours. 
they aren't stopping till the, the squee. It should appear within 10 to 15 light years of us, and they will have to do another reckoning before folding over to one of the Kattegat system's gas giants to correct velocity. We should have about 20 minutes to act. The raider described the plan to us, and M said it was a thing of martial beauty. Even with our superior technology, we're out-armored, outgunned, and cannot fold very close without blowing our cover, she said. If they don't destroy us, they simply fold away before we can do anything. But this is a plan. Later, the raider simply said, they are here. Range 0.7 light years. Our full drive control console lit up and coordinates centered themselves. How did you do that? M said. Just execute the fold. I could do that myself too, but you're the captain of this vessel. It will put us about 1.5 AU from the rate of change outside their detection radius for your fold drive. Am executed the fold. At this range, the alien ship still wasn't even visible, but the radar radar knew exactly where it was. Our time is short, she said, and I need a bit of it, she said as she closed her eyes. What are you doing? Feeling the interior layout of the civilian ship. You can map the interior layout of their ship from here? She opened her eyes. How do you think we fold between the surfaces of worlds light years apart? I'm ready. Enable the timer and set it for 90 seconds. You have got to be fucking kidding. Our time is short, she said again. And I set the timer. Moments later, the raider touched the bomb and then both she and the bomb disappeared. 45 seconds after that, the raider returned without the bomb. I think I have given it good placement to make sure the planet-killing drone is thoroughly destroyed. The carrier ship will be heavily damaged, but I'm uncertain whether its full drive will be completely disabled. These are very massive and solid objects. You're sure they didn't detect your folding? We know the limits of their processes very exactly, having made the components ourselves. Nanite-based full drives cannot detect our activity at all. Moments later, the raider said, the bomb has gone off. It has seriously disrupted them. I don't see anything, I said. It will take about 12 minutes for the light to reach us here, M said. While we were waiting, the raider said, there is still fold activity. They're trying to execute a detuned fold. They're not close enough to anything for it to couple with reliably, but they're trying different configurations. We need to finish destroying them. She put coordinates into our fold drive again. Fold into here, about half a million kilometers range. Their damaged drive won't be able to detect yours at that range, and we'll be able to see and gauge the extent of the destruction. M folded us in. We folded inward past the shell of radiation and blinding light, and we're still well outward of the larger ejected wreckage. The rate of change had been built in the form of a regular octahedron with rounded vertices, and each facet had a large movable mirror located at its center. Through the telescope, we could see that one of its corners had been blown completely off, and what was inside was glowing ominously. Those big mirrors are their sunlight cannons, the raider said. If we fold over to face the destroyed verdicts at close range, they won't be able to target us, and we'll be able to target the deep interior of the ship. Won't there be a lot of debris? There's only a quarter inch of aluminum between us and the vacuum of space. As with the light and radiation, hopefully we'll fold past all that. 
Hopefully. This is war, M said, and she used the sunlight RCS to exactly match the velocity and orientus, then executed the fold. We all donned welding goggles and strapped in in case the gravity plating should fail. The interior of the fold ship was a seething mass of molten structural material, but the center had been somewhat shielded by the mass of the ship. I'm drilling it, M said, and she opened up the cannon. They have redoubled their efforts at fold configurations. At this close range, even though their damage drive can detect what we're up to, the radar curator said, they're trying to target us. We became aware of bits of debris flashing into incandescence around us and digging our hull. But we were well in the shadow of the ship to all their functional cannons. Our ship was also buffeted by gas and debris from the hole Lem was drilling, but she used the RCS to hold us steady. After about two minutes, there was a flare from inside the fold ship. The fold activity has ceased, the raider said. I suggest retreat. We folded back to our observation position and watched. Finally, the raider nodded. Their fold drive is dyed. If any of them remain alive, they won't be for long. That was the first point in the encounter when it occurred to me that we had just killed a few thousand sapient beings, people like us in many ways. But I knew M would remind me that they were enemies that were trying to kill us, too, in spectacularly genocidal fashion. How sure are we? M asked. We've gone through too much fear to let them slip away. As far as my instruments can tell, their sunlight cannons should also be dead. M folded back and resumed drilling. She didn't stop until the entire fold ship split into three parts, forced apart by the pressure of boiling gases from within. I can now verify that their full drive is fully destroyed, the raider said. Okay, thanks for the help. No need for that. We curators bear, oh shit. What? We've taken damage. We're leaking air and fuel cell oxygen. And I'm not sure about the control surfaces and propellers. We all went back into the cargo area, which had windows. The wings were pockmarked with dents and tears, and two of the four propellers were missing at least one blade. We're in bad shape, Emma announced. I don't think I can get it to the surface of a planet like this. We might not even make it through the velocity adjustment in Neptune with these leaks. There's no need, the curator said. Can you execute one more fold to get us just a bit closer to Kattegat? The fold drive is one thing that does still seem to be working for now. A few minutes later, we held hands and closed our eyes, and when we opened them, we were safe in front of the Earth embassy on Kattegat as our faithful ship mail service burned up, crashing into one of its seas. Part 19. We rushed to the door of the embassy and knocked, fortunately getting their attention and gaining entrance before anyone outside noticed us. There were only a few embassy personnel present at the time, but M knew two of them personally, and they expressed shock at our arrival because they were certain they knew every human on Kattegat. We hustled off to the embassy's most private communications room and arranged a hasty microfold call to the earth. There, M, the Raider form curator, and I each told our stories four times to successively higher level officials. Our audience for the last retelling included the President of the United States and the highest leaders of several of our allies. What did the curators recommend, the director asked of our curator, without mentioning that one of the humans on his end was actually also a curator? 
the Raiders are a proud people who will be strongly tempted to react in kind. We have been inclined to forgive what they did in their attack on you because it was unintended and the result of your surprise show of force, and they seem to be as horrified as everyone else and have directed their space captains to make sure it never happens again. But the possibility of this escalating is strong, and we must not allow that. We will have the same problem on Earth, someone who sounded an awful lot like the president said. The number of people who know about this is still very limited. Keeping a lid on it should still be possible. We still have to deal with the civilians. The civilians are our children, and we reserve the right to discipline them in our own way. We need to find out now how deep this rot goes in their culture. It is wasteful to fell the tree if only one branch is diseased. We need assurance that the problem is completely contained. I believe we can achieve that, came a voice from Earth we recognized as our human form curator. We should chat a bit offline before finalizing decisions. That seemed to inspire general agreement. After we ended the call, the Raider form curator reminded us, you two are still rock stars here. Everyone will go crazy if they find out you've returned. And that's even without considering that you just saved their world. We should depart as soon as possible. Our fold ship, Edge of Space, is on the roof of the power station and scheduled to return to Earth this afternoon. If we could quietly get M&J to the ship, they could just take a stateroom and be on Earth within a day. I can get them there discreetly, the Raider said. She offered us her hands, and moments later we were on the ship. Edge of Space was a converted Boeing 747, and the captain showed us to a well-appointed room where we could safely hide from everyone else who was scheduled to fly with us. That gave us a chance to grab some sleep and some more entertaining not sleep before we touched down at JFK. Our human form curator was there to meet us, and after we ducked into a hidden corner of the airport, he folded us over to the Fold Project base. If the rest of the Earth and Kattegat were blissfully unaware of our brushes with genocide, the base was a beehive of activity. We had folded into the area where the fold inhibitor and span limiter had been built, and technicians were swarming over the inhibitor. What the hell is going on? M asked. We have engaged in one of your human rituals and made a purchase from you. We have offered a price for which to buy your fold inhibitor. We got a good deal because we had basically told you that we wouldn't let you use it yourselves anyway. And what did you pay us for it? A full technical theory of the operation of gravity blighting. We offer a guarantee that you will be able to manufacture your own with your own existing manufacturing techniques and no use of nanites. Well, that sounds fair, M said. Indeed, we expect it will lead to a few more things. Meanwhile, we have an immediate use for the inhibitor and no time to build our own. Seville? Yes, our agents there report that the general public has no knowledge of what was done in their name. Action must be taken, but we hope the genocidal methods can be avoided this time. Here, we need to clear space. At his direction, everyone backed away from an area of the floor and a machine folded into it. It wasn't very big and had the kind of gleaming perfect construction one might expect from molecular nanoassembly. Two aliens of different semi-humanoid species stepped out of it, and one of them presented our curator with what looked like a metal link belt. Both of them sported the mark of the curators prominently, one on its forehead and the other on its lower back. More of our agents, the curator said. These are machines we use when we are terraforming and we need to fold apertures or work from uninhabitable spaces. 
the new aliens took some measurements of the span limiter and then spoke with our curator in an alien tongue for a few minutes. Then they got in their space pod and folded out. They will be arranging an operating environment, power supply for it, our curator said. On Seville? No, that would be too vulnerable, deep below the surface of Seville's moon. I thought of the effort that had been necessary for humans to reach our own moon without the full drive. With the inhibitor operating, the civilians would be cut off from the rest of the galaxy and incapable of reaching the thing that was cutting them off. I almost felt sorry for them for a moment. So what's the belt for? I asked innocently. It's an amplifier for our personal fold drives, which are normally tuned for an aperture the size of our bodies. I can fold my own body about 100 light years and cancel the likely velocity differences I'd find at that range with my implanted fold drive. But if I hold your hands and include you in the aperture, my range drops to a light year or so, and my ability to cancel velocity drops too. I would not be able to get your fold inhibitor to your own moon on my own, much less to Seville's. But with this, I can fold an asteroid halfway across the galaxy or an entire rocky planet a good distance across its solar system. These are the tools we use to explore and create new habitable worlds. That sounds insanely dangerous, I said. Only curators with implanted drives can use these tools, and only when properly unlocked. We restrict access to those who have a need for them. I'll be returning this when we have taken care of the current situation. You keep these on your home world, M asked. At this, the curator hesitated. No, he said with a hint of emotion. Our home world was destroyed aeons ago when our home star, which was much like your Sol, entered the next phase of its stellar evolution and became a red giant. Surely you could have saved it. That was considered, he said heavily, but if we moved it to a new orbit, it would no longer be harmonically tuned to the system's other worlds. Our leaders then realized that there are some things that the cosmos simply needs to end. By that time, we were quite capable of walking among our children undetected, and we decided to move into the garden we've spent so much time to create. We have caches all over the galaxy of tools we might need once in a while, and of course, we continue to do what we have always done and create new and habitable worlds. Do you remember your home world? Oh, no. We can live a very long time. I personally met one of the team who arranged your Earth's KT Impactor event. But home was swallowed by our son more than four billion of your years ago. It's not that we remember our home, but we don't really have one at all now. You met someone who helped wipe out the dinosaurs? Is he still on Earth? Oh, no, he was part of the long-term evolution team. They were the ones who decided life had settled into an unuseful equilibrium and made the decision to disrupt it. Once it became clear that one of your ancestral species was likely to enter the critical path, they all moved out for other projects. I was part of the new team to foster critical path development. More experts came in as your ancestors approached, entered an ascended path. And of course, there are the other teams specialized in early solar system engineering to make stable orbits and stabilizing moons for habitable worlds and then for seeding and nurturing early life. When did you come to Earth? Relatively recently, about 300,000 years ago. But humans are my fifth professional project. You're going to make a mark on my resume, too. I was about to say something when two of M's pilot friends recognized her and hailed us. So you two slew the deadly fold ship again, one of them said. 
getting to be a bad habit, M said modestly. Well, we took care of the one here. Even brought our ship back in one piece. Good thing, too, since it was Grasshopper. You two flew my ship? It's the only one with both the sunlight cannon and the new manually adjustable aperture full drive. I thought we were going to nuke them. After you left, some of the bigwigs got cold feet about that. We reviewed what you guys did to the Raiders and decided to try drilling it with the sunlight cannon instead. When it stopped trying the bad fold, we enveloped it and folded it to a collision course with Venus. Venus, I said. Why not the sun or the moon? Moon's too accessible, the other pilot said nonchalantly. Didn't want anyone trying to pick up the pieces and put it back together. The sun would have taken too long, a month or more to fall in, depending on how close we dared folding it in to leave it. With Venus, we could fold ourselves into the planet's nighttime shadow, RCS away from the enemy drone, fold just ourselves out, and an hour later, there's light. Smooth, M said. And we brought your ship back in one piece, the first pilot repeated. While your target didn't have two fold drives and wasn't shooting at you. A little while later, one of the human technicians approached us. I was told to tell you... When we were ready, sir, he said to the curator. Is the away installation team ready to depart? Yes, sir. Have them stand on top of the inhibitor with all the parts and tools they will need for the installation as if we're preparing for a group photo. I'll join you shortly. He turned to us. I'd like the two of you to come to us, uh, to come with us if you can, he said. There are truths that must be penetrated at Seville before we activate this machine, and your presence would probably help. The inhibitor itself was about three meters high and 10 meters across. We all climbed the stairs and stood atop it. Our curator looked at his belt with a hint of a smile and raised his arms. Then the whole machine and all of us were in a new space, much more brightly and evenly lit, and we were a lot less heavy. We, the machine, the whole crew, their tools, had all folded to a new world without falling toward an attractor to adjust velocity, without using an RCS to adjust our orientation, and without doing any course corrections, we were in a freshly made cavern with life support and power on Seville's moon over 80 light years from Earth, and we had folded in with a large machine to make perfect contact with the floor in one seamless step. Part 20. Hold on. <clears throat> Let me go pee, Roger. Roger, tell Part him. 20 on hold. Part 20 on hold. <laughs> Roger, tell him again where to get your book. Tell him where you get more money. Lulu. Lulu.com. Yes. Uh, now, if you want an electronic copy uh, for an e-reader, like your Kindle or any of the others, then Amazon is fine for that. Uh, uh, that's their biz, their biz. But if you want a paper copy that you can hold in your hand, uh, then Lulu is the go-to place. Uh, they uh, they were the first publisher of the paper version, and uh, everything involved with it. They they are the uh, in fact the publisher of record with the copyright uh, office. Uh, so, and like I said, uh, the cost is the same for you. I, no one can do anything about that because it's a contractual thing. Uh, in order to have an ISBN, in order to make it available, if you do want to buy it through Amazon, then 
they can't undersell that market, even though they they have a lot less overhead, but they give the rest of the money to me. So that's a cool thing. Uh, despite that, I still get more money from Amazon sales than I do from Lulu sales. Um, I got a nice little pulse at the beginning of this year uh, because I was mentioned by another podcaster. But, uh, you know, generally there, you know, everyone who searches for it, you know, the first thing you find is the Amazon link. So if you're watching this here, like I said, consider going to Lulu. They're a great company to deal with. Incidentally, they have wonderful customer service. Uh, If you have a book that you would like to publish, I can't recommend them any more highly. They are an excellent uh, developer to work with. So that's that. (laughs) I thought I heard something there. Yeah, here's Tommy. Oh, let me take a drink of my wine. God, I still feel so fucking sick. Keep going. All right, let's resume. Yeah, I was I, I was I was that way for about two and a half weeks. Like I, like I said, I, I, it was a week before the storm. I got sick, and I've only been eating normal food now for about four days. I, so. This has been going on for about eight days now, and so yeah, I feel like it's. Yeah, I thought it was going to be yep. a couple of days, but I, yeah. Just, well, and I, 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 several times I thought I had beat it, and then yeah. it came back. And when yeah. I put that into the medical website, it took me straight to the page for mononucleosis. And I'm like, what the hell? I'm 57 years old. How can I have mono? Yeah. Well, I got mono in, in high school. <laughs> so, back to the reading. Back to the reading. <laughs> all right. So, yeah. Back to, okay, part 20. The technicians fanned out to begin their tasks with quiet confidence. They weren't being shot at and had a well-defined job to complete. There were other aliens present in various form, all of whom turned out to actually be curators who assisted and began suggesting modifications, which the technicians carefully considered. The inhibitor itself is basic silicon substrate, by design redundant, our human form curator told us. But your power supplies use some components which might not have the longevity we seek. Fortunately, we have the technology at hand to bypass those and power the silicon directly. Where's the power coming from? Photovoltaic nanite network on the surface with a storage layer for the lunar night. It's still knitting out, but it should be done before nightfall, and it's already adequate for direct power in the day. Unlike the technicians who were nodding and pointing to connection points, Em and I had no real idea why we were there. New curators of different form popped in and out from time to time. And after an hour or so, a civilian appeared. Also one of ours, our curator said before we could ask, Greetings, old friend. Sweet. And yourself. I haven't seen you since you helped us get these guys through the path. You worked on the Seville project? M asked our curator. Oh, yes. And that day I walked among them, as we here does now. Quite a different experience. Senses are senses, the civilian form curator said, and in this case, sense less is sense less. Also a pun in civilian, our curator said to him and me. So what's it like down there? Nobody knows about it. The Xenocide project has been kept under a tight lid of secrecy by those who moved it forward. 
many of the acts they performed to get it done were obviously criminal under civilian law. The resources they diverted to create the death drones have already created an economic recession, and many people have been trying to figure out why it's happening. Well, they're about to find out. Maybe what we're doing here is a little harsh, I suggested. We've discussed this at the highest levels all across the galaxy, the civilian said. An example must be made. Do they have any assets off system? Not many. Both of their remaining full ships are in orbit now. They have a few individuals on other worlds, but not enough to establish a stable colony, should anyone even let them try. We consulted with the technicians. The the conversion and installation was almost complete. The human-built power supplies and control panel had been completely bypassed. The inhibitor would be activated by a timer of curator design. Are all of our people off-world? Actually, a lot of them have elected to stay. We've made sure they understood there will be no back door past the inhibitor, but this is also galactic history being made, and they want to bear witness. And the expected blackout duration isn't that long for us. How long are you going to shut them out? Long enough to make an impression. Their grand council is in session. I think it's about time to crash it. Humans, if you don't mind, he extended his hands, and Em and I each took one. Moments later, we were in an auditorium full of civilians obviously engaged in the business of state. Em and I were hearing translation, even though we weren't wearing obvious translation hardware. What is the meaning of this? One civilian shouted. Why are these aliens? How have they appeared in our chamber? We have come to judge you, the civilian curator said. And while the translation was calm and the original sounds it was making boomed through the chamber. Guards! The doors won't open. Six civilians advanced on us with weapons drawn. Our curators looked at one another and waved their arms, and the weapons dissolved into dust. I did not know you could do that, I muttered. We couldn't do it to you, our human form curator muttered back. But you know how your people have been wondering if we put back doors into the nanite technology? Well, now you know. One of the representatives slowly approached us as everyone else was backing away, and I realized it was my original contact, Kay, who had once made an appointment with a well-known but not very space-savvy human dermatologist. Not possible, Kay said. What manner of trickery is this? Are you human, Jay? Yes, I said as the chamber went quiet. It was a riot of color as the representatives reacted to the situation. Their dermis announced their feelings. You're dead, Kay shouted and looked at him. And you, and you, how are you here? This is what we are here to explain. How many of your colleagues know of these? Above our heads, a holographic display appeared in the two death drones at station. There was much muttering in the chamber. You know what they are, I said to Kay. Of course I do. You excreted on the equilibrium of the galaxy. You rewarded our enemies with powerful technology and brought them to our door. You are spreading through the unclaimed worlds of the galaxy like vermin. We did what was necessary. What did you do? Several voices said from the gallery. We exterminated the vermin, Kay said. These will be among the last of their kind, as it should be. They made a realization that they thought was quite clever, but almost everything is not as new as they thought, the curator said. 
A full drive whose only purpose is to detune and fold the planet into its star doesn't need to be manned in order to perfect its calibration. So they built two dedicated planet-killing drones and sent one to Earth and the other to Kattegat, the homeworld of those you call the Raiders. And how did they fund this murderous extravagance? You will probably find that much of it was illegal and has caused your current economic downturn. It doesn't matter, K-Spat. We did what had to be done. And you failed, M said. Our team stopped you at Earth, and Jay and I ambushed your ship rate of change and destroyed it before it could deliver the other drone to Kattegat. Lies! We have the sunlight cannon now. All at this, a gasp went up from the chamber. Your ships have hulls of gossamer. How could you possibly prevail against one of our capital ships? We didn't use the sunlight cannon. We used a hydrogen bomb. The curators helpfully put up a projected image of the rate of change with its blown-off apex and the ominous glow from within. Another gasp from the chamber. You are abominations, Kay shouted. Several civilians came forward to restrain it before it could attack us. We created you, the civilian form curator said to the chamber. We formed your world from the cosmic dust, gave it a moon and the right conditions for life to thrive. We seeded your world with life and guided it, forming your tree of life and your genus and your ancestral species. We gave you encouragement to evolve intelligence and in time, language and writing and science and technology. We gave you nanites in the fold drive and you have thanked us for our gifts by using them to try to murder our other children. There was a ripple in the chamber as someone with obvious authority descended from the audience to the dais. Your power is obvious, it said. Most of us did not know of this transgression which was done in our name. What are your intentions? The last time this happened was over a billion years ago, the civilian form curator said. In that case, it started a planet-folding war. We had to end it by folding 20 worlds into the stars themselves to fully cure the disease. We will do whatever we can to atone. You have the humans to thank for the fact that you are still alive. They have given us a new option. There will be hardship, but your kind will have a second chance. <coughs> I know my people will ask why we are being punished, but not those of Kattegat who did fold one of your worlds into its sun. That was the act of a desperate crew who were surprised by an existential threat they did not expect. And the world they folded did not harbor a critical path species or post-critical path civilization. Their leaders were horrified to learn what happened and quickly instructed their space captains to make sure it never happened again. And the humans exercised mercy and without our encouragement decided to rectify the problem by solving the problem that made the raiders become raiders in the first place, their starvation for raw materials rather than exacting revenge. Meanwhile, even though you had never even been attacked, your leaders devoted significant resources to the purpose of xenocide. They had not been surprised and knew just what they were doing. In that case, we gratefully accept your decision to grant us a second chance. May I ask just what our hardship will be and for how long? You will find out its form soon enough. As for the duration, we'll see if a thousand of your years gives you time to reflect on what was done in your name. As Em and I were still sucking in our breath, our curator grabbed our hands and suddenly we were back on Seville's moon, where all the human technicians and aliens were gone. 
the curator activated a control panel and motioned for our hands again, saying, quickly. Moments later, we were on a transparent glass surface elevated far above a desert landscape. My mother brought me here when I was a child, Em said. The Grand Canyon Skywalk, isn't it? Yes. My people have a saying that when you have to do something ugly, you should remind yourself of something beautiful. Your people made this bridge purely for the purpose of celebrating the beauty of the world we gave you. This would have been lost if the civilians had succeeded in their plan. It was just a few of them, I said. It only takes a few, and a lot more supporting and following them blindly as your people learned over time. It's a terrible thing that it happened, but your people know genocide. The civilians don't. They're still able to think of it as a cleansing process. But as violent as humans can be, you have also learned the hard way just how much so much blood costs. You applied the same lesson to the Raiders that you have applied to your own nations in recent time, and we're quite proud of you. We watched as the sun sank toward the horizon. How do we know the civilians will learn the same thing from their millennium of exile? Oh, we don't, he said as twilight deepened. But if they don't, there's always still plan A. What's plan A? Uh, genocidal methods. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. I like that. That's I like that. That's beautiful, though. I've been, a, uh, well, I've, the curators themselves are insanely dangerous, as we are only just finding out. Or, or I mean... Or just, you know, heavy-handed. One thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, just, like, as I've slowly moved from reading about the Cold War to, like, I'm starting to look farther and farther back into history, and it's, you know, at, like, one point, World War II just finished, and then it's World War II was, you know, we just did the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Like, at one point, there was the 20th anniversary of, like, VE Day. And then World War II turns into, like, something your parents tell you about. And then something your grandparents tell you about. And now it's solely, like, there's only so many veterans left. And it's, like, just in my lifetime, I've moved from, like, hearing my great uncle talk about D-Day to now it's, like, you got to go find on YouTube, like, you know, yeah. Only so many. Yeah, there's not there's not a lot of World War II veterans left alive. No, and well, what I mean is like, so you see how this, and like you know, you know me, like I love I love Cold War, maybe some World War One, but really before that, to me, I've never really looked too far into it. And then you know, as I've learned more about like the Civil War, Revolutionary War, and then you start going back to Europe, and then you start going farther and farther back, all the way back to like you start going to like you know the cradle of civilization. And one kind of thing uh -huh. I've, I've, I've learned, and I'd like to think I've grown really in the last month or so, just I think by just happenstance, is this like realization that it's like, you know, how do I word this? You know, for me, like worst case scenario, like China rising and they move their sort of genocidal and 1984 police state around the world best case like america fights back and wins but i've been thinking like even if best case 
like let's America prevails. I was like, where do, like where does that really go? Like let's extrapolate it to where I tell the story. It was, oh, it was ten years ago that we beat China, and then it's twenty, and then it's my kids, and then it's my grandkids, and then farther out from that, like, well, when does it start to become like, oh, that's Revolutionary War? Then when does it come to like, oh, that's Columbus? To, and really, what I'm trying to say is, I'm starting to realize that like, like it's great to love your country. There's nothing wrong with pay. Uh, Chinese people should love China. You know, Afghanistan. Afghani should love Afghanistan. You know. Where, you know, with every nation. But ultimately, when you look back and there are, you know, there are battles in World War II that maybe you haven't heard of before. But as you go farther back in history, it turns into like there are countries you've never even heard of. And then you go farther back, there are whole civilizations you had never even heard of that are just a footnote in some book. But at the time, there were people there that were so hellbent on making theirs the best and when you look back, you start to realize that the idea of like eviscerating your enemies, only, there, only so many peoples can do it over so many millennia where you, before you start to realize like it's not the way to go. You know, sometimes people do dial it up to 11 and they say, we're going to be the worst, the Nazis, ISIS, right? We're going to be ruthless. Mm-hmm. Then those those fade into history, and then you go, well, what was all that bloodshed for? So what I'm trying to say with all of this is I've been looking more and more at, like, like what do I, you know, what do I want to do in my, in my short life? And it's really, I'm like, you know what? It's, I love the United States, but, like, I think my focus is going to be on, like, what's the one thing near and dear to me? Like, working on mental health, right? And that's why I've been having on Alabeck and we've been talking about autism and he's been helping a ton of his patients back in, you know, the former Soviet Union. And it, but it's really, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that we had this reading today. Cause like in the last month, and there wasn't any one thing that happened in the last month, more so it just seems like years of reading it all kind of, for whatever reason clicked, maybe it was just, I don't know, but I've realized like, Hey man, like, Building the biggest mill, and you know, and I'm, as you know, I love raw, raw, mayor, I love aircraft carriers, bombers, sure, it's all great. But what I realized is like, hey man, like, what am I going to do in this world that has a lasting impact? Like, what has a more lasting impact on you? Learning about the ruthlessness of the Assyrians or the invention of like air conditioning or penicillin, you know, or, or women's suffrage or, you know, or desegregation, right? You go, there are things, computers, really anything, but you go, there are, you go, there are, there are in, in things you can leave in this world that do have a lasting effect, right? That you, penicillin, right? Do have an effect, uh, you know, painkillers for, for surgery. And that's what I'm trying to look at more is like, I mean, I'll always love the United States. I'll always love B2 stealth bombers. Sure. But like. I've really been thinking like, hey, man, every empire rises, stays at the apex and wanes. And the next one comes along and no, this one will never fall and it will fall. And the next one in 200 years, it'll probably be China will be at their apex in 500 years. It'll be fucking Venezuela in a thousand years. It will be Norway. And every nation will think that they've got the grip on the world. 
and it will just keep going. And so what I'm saying is it's interesting that we had this reading today that because they still view it as a cleansing process and you finally have to realize you cannot brute force your way through this. You can just, all the civilians do they're aliens. They haven't learned the lesson. The humans at this point, kind of have got the lesson well what i mean is uh, i feel like up until sorry up until like a month ago i feel like i was probably more in the civilian mindset where i was like (laughs) america can grip the world and then really for whatever reason just through i think chance and a bunch of probably different books all leading it's probably been leading this has probably been coming on for 10 years and i haven't even noticed it but the realization of like how many times do we have to grip the world with an iron fist, whether it's whether it's ships made of timber or whether it's B-2 bombers before you realize, hey, man, this isn't this isn't the way to, in it, the long it, run. It don't yeah. work in the long run. So might as well leave the place better than you found it. Yeah, you will. You will like this if we if we keep going with this. Uh <coughs> We are pretty close to what would have been the end of book one if I had known what I was getting into. Uh, The second half of book one really would have been book two if I had known where I was going with it. It's about the same length as the first half of book one. And it's a long story arc about J&M uplifting another uh, civilization. Uh, But book two begins with J&M cleaning up the situation on earth because it develops that our geopolitics, uh, our geopolitics has devolved into a toxic stalemate where there are four superpowers and the, they, they have come to a mutual agreement. Uh, two of them are outright run by what amount of criminal gangs. And they've come to a stalemate agreement that more progress on technology is a bad thing because it will upset the equilibrium that has been established and uh there is an effort that will be made to fix the situation but i actually wrote the wikipedia entry for earth's geopolitical situation in the year 2180 uh between books one and two which will probably be part of our reading when we get to that point um and yeah, there's a, a whole uh, process. It was it was an interesting discussion in the comments because I said, well, okay, this is where I see it coming. Because I didn't want a super complicated situation. I wanted to ha- it to be something that could be cleaned up uh, by a few decisive actions. So a lot of our existing situation has already been consolidated. And in particular... The Soviet Union and the United States have consolidated into the Russo-American Concordance, which is a single entity that rules the entire extent of the old Soviet Union, Europe, and the Americas. That's a single superpower in the year 2180. Uh, There is also China, which is mostly its current extent, except that it's retaken the Koreas, Taiwan, uh, and all of the other countries in that part of Asia. Uh, but it's its usual paranoid insular self. Uh, the Japanese and Indians have uh, joined forces. Only the Japanese, you know, the Yakuza took over their country much the way that the Russian gangs took over their country and ours and the rest of the 
whole thing there. Uh, so India's democracy is also faded toast. And the Australians are still themselves because nobody wants their fucking country because there's nothing there. <laughs> it's remote. They don't have any natural resources. And I, I got a, a comment in the comments. It's like, well, you got Australia right. <laughs> it's... Do you do you remember Bill Hicks's? Bill Hicks had a bit on like like the few areas that Australia that are like beautiful, but he he was like he goes think about it, you know. Great Britain sent their criminals there, and it's like Great Britain, foggy, rainy, a bunch of shitty boiled food, everyone with bad teeth, no sun. Australia, tropical blue waters shrimp the size of canoe commit a crime and you end up in paradise i'm jack the ripper <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh so anyway that's a preview of uh where things are going but <clears throat> that will be uh book two where things will take a change uh of course there are four books in total and uh, as I said, if I had realized where this was going, there would be five books and we would be approaching the end of the first one right now. But uh, since you seem to be still vertical, I uh, want to hear a couple more little uh, yeah, covering episodes. For what? Uh, I got a couple episodes that's sort of on their own. You know, I mean, I've, I've covered the civilian exile arc there. Uh, I've got a couple of episodes that sort of bridge the gap to where the next thing is going. Oh, I, I, I can't today. I'm going to shit myself soon. I've, no, I mean, okay. no, in general, no, I'd love to continue the readings. I can't today. Um, I, okay. le I legitimately still feel like shit. Um, I was going to ask kind of random question. Have you ever seen those land trains? In Australia? No, I've heard of them, though. There are these, like, yeah. It's, I know what you're talking about. There, let me, let me, if we're not going to do any more reading, let me get my windows back sure. where I can look at you. Yeah. Straighten up. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, yeah and no, it's obviously, there we are. obviously, Roger, I love your readings, but I, I want to give them, like, full of te full attention. I don't want to, I don't want to white knuckle through them just to do them. I, I much more appreciate just listening when I, you know, when I'm enjoyable. Not when I'm trying to like not shit my pants, but um, the land. Train yeah, well, I figured I figured you would like that though because you had asked about has anyone used the fold drives as weapons, and I love. We it, had a man. hydrogen bomb. I loved yeah, it. So. I loved it. It was like a it was like battleship, right? Where those alien ships come to Earth and they end up getting like shut off from the rest of humanity. It's like Hawaii somehow gets like separated. And like they have yeah. to, they have to activate like the old like battleships from World War II, and it's like because they're all like manual, there's no, uh, you know, there's no electronics in them or no like vital electronics. That's what they use to fight the aliens because it's all just like the EMPs don't work on it. It's like these things just run on fucking like diesel, like you know, there's no yep. everything's just gears turning. Everything's manual. Yeah, yep. it, well, it seems. Well, it's like Battlestar Galactica was like that too. You know, they they had this whole thing they could make. Uh, human uh, scale androids, but uh, the whole thing was because the Cylons had hacked the 
the colonies, uh, their technology was limited. They said they, they, uh, the producers said basically the most advanced computer on a, a battle star like the Galactica would be like maybe an Apple II, uh, roughly equivalent, so that it couldn't be hacked by a virus or something like that. It would be too simple. Yeah. And this is what they're using for interstellar travel and and for warfare. Yeah. And this extremely futuristic society, uh, because let's face it, you know, computers have been uh, have kind of become a disaster. Uh, and and I say that as someone who programs them for a living. It's like uh, I did not. Uh, well, when viruses started to be a thing. I read up on them, and in fact, I reverse-engineered one and uh, wrote an antidote for it because it got into our systems at work. Uh, and, and I saw how these things worked and how they progressed, and I realized that a lot of the blame for this goes to Microsoft and Apple and Google for making things that can be hijacked in this way because if you go back further you there's no way you could do that to a commodore 64 or an apple II because their firmware can't be overwritten it's in chips that can't literally physically can't be changed yeah. once they've been installed and so you, you there's literally no way to do something like a computer virus or those early computers, but Q, IBM, and Microsoft, and PC, and you have an operating system that can be upgraded. Mm -hmm. Well, well it's whether it's an upgrade or not depends on who's doing the regrade, don't it? Well, it's, <laughs> it's like one of the things they would have at like nuclear bunkers and stuff, and some of them where, like, <clears throat> they would, ha I mean, th these things were so well thought out that, you know, some of them had, like, even they, they even had, like, the, some of the government ones were just, like, they were ready for, like, 30 years after the war. It was, like, farming equipment. But some of the vehicles they had for, like, initial scouting, it was all, like, it was all, like, pickup trucks from, like, World War Two that, that, that yeah. didn't have any. Carburetors. Yeah, because they were just, like, doesn't matter if there's, like, latent EMPs and, you know, bombs going off in the upper atmosphere like that won't so it's a weird as like the like the window of technology moves forward right it's like it's like yeah. everything's always shifting right and it's 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 not just that you can like take a modern day car and put it in the past and it's like well do they have the ability to you know create those polymers do they have so it's like and then as those old technologies gets faded out, just like the F1 engines on the Saturn V that we don't know how to build anymore, it's like, well, because this whole paradigm is moved to where we don't need to know how. To, so it's like this weird sort of moving yeah. window of Well, the, the new stuff is more efficient and works better when it works. And yeah. It's just, but it fails in new and unimproved. My work car developed a problem which is still unresolved every once in a while. Uh, when I first crank it up, if the weather is hot, the engine is cold, and I have the air conditioner maxed out, when I go to accelerate out of the parking lot, the trans when the transmission kicks in, because you know, an automatic transmission nowadays, you 
rev the engine up, and then there's a little thump as the transmission engages. And if there's a little perfect storm where the air conditioner compressor engages about the same time the transmission does, everything blinks, the console says check owner's manual, and the car goes into what they call, uh, you know, cripple mode, you know, to, you know, stealth. It's like, yeah, I lost the word. It's, uh, but basically, the accelerator stops working. Limp mode. You know, so the engine stays running, but it doesn't respond to the accelerator anymore. And I have to turn it off, let it sit for a few seconds, and turn it back on. And what it is, is the... Uh, there's not a cable connecting the accelerator to the throttle body. It's a drive-by-wire car. And the throttle body has a sensor and a motor. And when the, you know, so this allows the computer to exert a finer control, you know, which improves your gas mileage by, you know, putting the throttle in a position that might be more appropriate than what you think to get the acceleration you want. But if the computer senses that the throttle isn't in the position that it's been commanded, then it goes ape shit, puts the car in limp mode, starts flashing all the lights and everything. And this is basically a software error because this is the thing that apparently can happen when there's a little bit of wear on the car. The car's got 120,000 miles on it. And it's not like a real problem. You know, like I said, I turn the ignition off, put the car in park, put it, you know, turn the ignition back on, it'll come right up and it's all working again. But it's because the computer went berserk and went, oh my God, I don't know what's going on. Uh, That is a thing that would not happen with a simple carbureted vehicle that had a piece of wire rope between the accelerator and the throttle. You know, that's just not a problem. Now, of course, that car would also probably get 10 miles per gallon less because it's not being managed as efficiently. But when it happens to me in the middle of a traffic jam, I was like, this isn't an improvement. Yeah. And I've got a coworker who has an even newer vehicle and he's like, it insists on turning the engine off when he's sitting at an intersection at a stoplight. And then when he hits the accelerator, it turns the engine back on. Well, that's fine and dandy if you don't live in fucking Louisiana in the summer. And when the engine goes off, so does the air condition. Now, so far, he can disable that function, but he has to, but it, but the disabling of it isn't sticky. He has to do that every time he starts the car. Otherwise, okay, and they're talking about making it where you can't disable it at all in even newer vehicles. It's got lane control. He says it will jerk the steering wheel out of his hands if it looks like he's going out of the lane on a well-marked road. Now, that's the kind of thing that is great 99% of the time and really sucks the other 1% when the computer doesn't know what the fuck is actually going on because these machines 
No one knows actually how they work. They're AIs that have been trained, right, on a model. So we have a GPS that our insurance, our corporate insurance company is mandated. And it's got a camera unit. And it yells at you. Reduce speed, reduce speed if you're going too fast. It knows the speed limit where you are. But if you're on a, you know, every once in a while we find ourselves, we're doing industrial work. We're in a place that's not a road, okay? It's a service thing that a plant built. It's not an official road. doesn't have a speed limit. My service manager says he was going five miles an hour. The thing was going, reduce speed, reduce speed, reduce speed, reduce speed the whole time. Because apparently it thinks speed limit is zero. That's all I can figure. Uh, I was behind a van a couple of weeks ago and it started saying, reduce following distance. Now I was following at a safe distance, but this was a full size E350 van and it had a very bright roof line feature and a very bright chrome bumper. And the body uh. was wrapped with a very dark modeled wrap. And what I think is that the computer thought it was a sedan and that I was a lot closer to it than I really was. This is the sort of thing, these edge cases bite you in the ass. Yeah. My entire career has been, you know, as far as programming computers, it's been trying to anticipate edge cases like this and head them off at the past. And I, I'm pretty good at that. But when I look at these self-driving car experiments, I'm like, you know, the guy who got killed in his Tesla mm -hmm. came, up, came up on a tractor trailer yeah. that was broadside across the highway, right? Yeah. Well, the AI didn't, didn't know that. what to make of this. Yeah. And it thought that was the horizon. So it just drove through full speed. Yeah. Killed right guy, into the yeah. side of the trailer and killed the guy. Yeah. Uh, and Tesla did the diagnostics and said, okay, well, this was the bad decision that the computer made. Well, how many more bad decisions like that yeah. are there for these computers to make? Yeah. No one is thinking of that. Yeah. People don't think of that. Engineers. Well, you know, Lawrence Burns, don't. the engineer I interviewed who wrote the book Autonomy, who's the VP of General Motors. He talks about that case and everything you're saying. Yeah, it's a great book, Autonomy. But yeah, no, it's he's the he's kind of saying what you are. He's like, no one's really thinking about this stuff. But he's like, these are the edge cases that like we only learn after someone's been killed. And we're like, oh, you yeah. can't do that. And it's like, well, sucks to suck to be that guy, like, right? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I've been doing industrial control systems for over thirty years, and I have a really good reputation. But part of that arose because I didn't start out as an engineer. I have, I was trained as an engineer. I have three-fourths of an engineering degree, but I didn't finish it. So I know how engineers are trained. But I also worked as a service technician. So I've worked with end users, and I've worked as a technician fixing systems. And I can tell you that engineers don't think of how things break. They think of how things work. This is a fundamental difference between technicians and engineers. And each group hates the other and thinks that the other is stupid because 
technicians don't know how much goes into engineering to make stuff work in the first place. They, they honestly don't appreciate that. But the engineers don't think of what happens when the technician shows up and your shit is broken. And what do you need to do to fix it? This is how you end up with bolts in a place where you can't put a spanner on them and shit like that. Uh, because the engineer isn't thinking of what happens when this thing breaks. And I have gotten the reputation that I do in my little corner of my little industry, mainly because when I build an application for someone, I am thinking I might actually end up in the field working on this thing one day when it fucks up. Yeah. Will I be able to tell what happened? Will I be able to fix what happened? Will I be able to get to the thing that's broken? Will I be able to troubleshoot it? And so I put in things to facilitate this. But most engineers don't think in those terms. They're, they're thinking, this is what I have to do to make it work. And once you get to the point where you've made it work, you sign the form and you pass it on. Uh, and the problem with all of these AI things is that the, you, you can't audit them. You, you can't go through and say, well, what is the failure mode? Because no one knows how they fucking work at all. Uh, you know, you've, you've, you've basically trained the AI against this range of conditions. I'm reminded of uh, an anecdote from Dr. Eric Harth's book, uh, the late Dr. Eric Harth. He's one of the people who convinced me AI was possible after I'd given up on it even though he himself never believed it was possible. But he wrote a book called The Creative Loop, and, uh, and he wrote this article in Science Magazine about how the thalamus and cerebral cortex interact to create consciousness. Uh, but he pointed out that the Army had done an experiment in the 90s to train an AI to identify tanks. And... They thought it had gone swimmingly. They, they, they had got it up to like a 95% success rate. And when they went to test it in more random conditions, it completely failed because it turned out when they trained the AI, more of their pictures of tanks were taken on cloudy days than their mm -hmm. reference pictures and so what the AI had trained on was to detect a cloudy day. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> but because you don't know what it's triggering on, all you know is it's like, is this a tank? Yes. Is this a tank? Yes. Is this a tank? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it'd be like these yeah. three pictures also are all cloudy. Then you take the sunny picture with no tank. Nope. Nope. Well, then you bring it to someone who has fresh pictures and there's a tank on a sunny day and it says tank, what tank? And it's like, wait, wait a minute. You know, and that's like, well, no, it, it, it was looking at the weather, not the tank. Yeah. yeah. But there's no way to tell that because the, the way that these neural networks program themselves isn't amenable to examination. They can't explain what they're looking at. Uh, you know, if, if you or I are learning something and our teacher wants to know whether we're getting it or not, it can ask us and we can say, yeah, well, 
this is why I think it's a tank. It's got these sharp corner angles and this thing sticking out of it. It's got turret and all. It's like, yeah, that looks kind of familiar. Uh, but you can't do that with the AI because it's not enough eye yeah. to, to engage you. So this is, you know... Uh, I mean, this was all in the back of my mind, in fact, when I thought of prime intellect, because this is the basic problem with these expert systems. Uh, you know, they're talking about doing medical diagnostics and, uh, and other things. And these things are all great 95% of the time. But it, that other 5% of the time bites you in the ass. And I've gotten to the point where I don't think I ever want a new car anymore. Because new cars now all come with these automation systems. And, you know, it's like one of the other things the GPS does is uh, the newer ones, not the the one in my car, fortunately, doesn't have this. But the newer, the the two or three newest ones have rear facing cameras that take a that, that are looking at you. And what they are ostensibly for is to make sure that your eyes are on the road. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're tracking that, but they also are taking pictures of you every five minutes. And so our girl back in Harahan can look at it and it's like, Oh yeah, there's Jason eating his Doritos. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And I'm like, I said, yo, if that was in my car, there would be a piece of masking tape over that. Yeah. Fuck off. No. Yeah. There, there's just, there's just, there's no way. Yeah. You know, uh, that's, that's a bridge too far. You yeah. know, we would be having a serious argument about that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, but, uh, but also, you know, and another thing is I've got a car, I've got one of these things in it. Why? Well, because it's not my car. It's a work car. I don't own it. The company that I work for owns it. And it's not even their idea. It's their insurance company's idea. Yeah. And that is what's going to end up driving a bunch of things, you know, People who don't want to get vaccinated. I would say there was a comment I read on Daily Coast about two months ago that said, "You don't want to get vaccinated. Your world is about to shrink to the size of a tweet because all of these yeah, entities insurance. are are going to suddenly, and a lot of it's going to be driven by insurance companies yeah. because they're going to tell people, you know, uh, there is a private school in Madisonville, Louisiana." which is one of the most Republican places in the entire observable universe. And the headmaster sent out a letter saying, we are going to have a vaccination masking requirement. And of course, all of the maggots up in arms. And he just said, look, we were informed by our insurance company that if we don't have this policy, they're dropping our policy. Nobody in their right mind is going to conduct business without liability insurance. Yeah. We looked around. All of the other insurance companies have the same policy. So if you don't like it, we will refund the money that you've spent so far this school year, and we'll see you next year. Yeah. But that's all we can do. And that's going to spread very yeah. quickly, I think. It's a, yeah, it's a fascinating thought is, yeah, how much insurance drives shit. And it's like, yeah, yeah. You, you don't think about it. It's like it's like no one gives a fuck if you smoke cigarettes, but Applebee's doesn't want to pay out your secondhand smoke cancer bill. Eighty years, you know, some dude's been eating 
fucking mozzarella sticks there every Friday for two decades and then sues <laughs> you when his lungs are black. That's an yep. interesting thought. Yeah, no. Kind of the the wild, it, it, wild card. That, 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 is, that is becoming a driving factor for a lot of things. And, you know, I wouldn't have expected it. So I'm at, uh, the company I work for has, <laughs> I want to say, about 130 employees right now. Uh, so they're right on that cusp. They're getting to the point where they might not be a small business anymore because mm-hmm. they've grown a lot. Uh, but the insurance companies are basically telling them, no, we want these spy devices in all of your vehicles. And they're like, neep, you know, because what's it costing them? And of course, they're, they're also trying to foist these on ordinary people. You know, they're telling you if you got State Farm or whatever, yeah, if you, if you let us put our little spy box in your car, we'll, we'll, we'll drop your that. insurance premium. And they're not being real upfront about just what this means, yeah. uh, about just what this box tells you. You know, they know everywhere the vehicle goes. Yeah, no, fuck that. In real time. Yeah, no, fuck off. So. Fuck off. It's the, yeah. when people are always, you know, like myself, and I'm like, no, I don't want that. Uh, the counter argument's always like, what are you hiding? And it's like, no, I just want a reasonable expectation of privacy. Well, why? Fuck off, that's why. It's, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's an event horizon of where your need to know about my business doesn't penetrate. The light can't penetrate the black hole. It's why do I need privacy? That's private. Fuck off. Yeah. Why can't I if see? If I need your... to go visit the porcelain throne and throw my my guts out, that's none yeah. of your business. Yeah. It's, uh, but... Why are your medical records private? Because they're private. Well, what's on them that you don't yeah. want me to see? That's private. Go eat a dick. Fuck yeah. off. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know that is that is eroding <laughs> in serious ways uh, right in front of our faces, and yeah. it, it's. Uh, I remember this short film I watched in like 2009 and it was like, uh, but you had your, your insurance company had like a monitor attached to like your sewage and it was just so they could, and it was like, it was like all these drugs were legal. It wasn't some like weird Puritan state, but it was just like, if you want our coverage, we're detecting amphetamine and alcohol. So you, what, you had a fun night on the town. But, you know, we're going to – so all of a sudden there are all these guys that are, you know, maybe not pissing in the toilet. They're pissing in a water bottle. And that turns into this whole weird, how come you're not using the toilet? And it's just like that all yeah. gives me the willies. And I'm, it's just like, but yeah, they're, they're, that's a huge amount of leverage, right? Well, it's not – we're not saying that you're obligated to do it, but do you want this low premium? Well, then, Tommy, you know, you got to – how many podcasts are you doing every day? Are you exhausted? What's your stress? What are your cortisol levels? Well, you know, we want to check your, and it's just like, dude, I, I don't know, man. It's a, fuck. Yeah. I don't, yeah. It's a, it's a weird, but then at the same time, you're like, well, they're a private company. They're an insurance company. How come they're not allowed to pursue the, you know, the, the best bottom yeah, they're line. covering their yeah yeah they're reducing their their it's risk, a, it's risk a exposure business no different than a fucking restaurant or whatever or or me making hoodies they're they're out there trying to make money to, yeah it's which is why i have made the case that business uh that the government can't be run like a business because government isn't a business government and business have different goals the goal of a business is to make money we all accept that, although that is a fairly new thing. 
you know, you got to remember that the idea that the purpose of a corporation above and beyond all else is to make profit for its investors only dates the mid 19th century. It's mm-hmm. very American. Yeah. Before that, uh, corporations only existed because they were chartered to, by yeah, their to, governments yeah. with specific purposes. So if you're the East India Company and you're chartered with the purpose of importing stuff from China, then you're not allowed to just say, well, we think there would be more profit if we branch out into aerospace. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or you yeah. can't do that. Yeah. That's you know, yeah. you're chartered with a specific purpose. Okay. So it's like we've seen these big companies like IBM and Hewlett Packard, for example, just completely divest themselves of what we thought was their core businesses yeah. and go off on tangents and stuff. So it's, and yeah. that's only been allowed for the last hundred years or so. And, uh, and of course there was the antitrust, uh, yeah, debacle in the late 19th century that led up to where it is now. But it was really only since about the civil war that you had these companies that were chartered who's, you know, you know, where their charter was to make money, period, full stop. Yeah. However, you can do that. Yeah. Uh, that was not a thing that existed anywhere before. And now, of course, it's global. Yeah. Uh, if anything, one of the weirder things is that of all people, the people who are who seem to be pushing back on that uh, the hardest are the Chinese. It's like they are acting like no, you are part of a society. And even though they are probably wrong in multiple other ways, to me, this is a thing where they have it right, where they're telling these where they shift like different independent companies that no, you have a responsibility as a functioning part of society, particularly if you have a monopoly, mm-hmm. if you're like Facebook or something, then you you have a responsibility that goes beyond just making money to use your platform to make sure that uh, correct information is disseminated, that insurrection is not fomented, various things like that. And of course, the, this is like anathema to a lot of American interests. You know, that's it's kind of funny. The more you, I mean, yeah, China, you know, despite their police state and their three million Muslims in concentration camps. They do, and this will be taken out of context one day, they do have parts about them that at the very least are admirable from like a from like a, a logistic yeah. standpoint. Their ability to how every company is like fifty one percent owned by the government and how they can take assets from like defense contractors who are just flush with cash and then they can shift it to like other things that to make them artificially profitable. It's a uh, you know, the whole human rights thing and the organ harvesting, that's not good. But yeah, no, there are well, aspects I mean, of it like, that you just have to, I mean, objectively. Even it's a like, stopped clock is yeah, right yeah, twice yeah, a day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's fascinating that you say that because it's like, yeah, it's China. And then like one of. This one, is something, yes, like there, there, there's stuff they're definitely getting wrong. Oh, no, it's, but it's, it's this is something they're getting right that we're getting wrong. No, it is. And like how they say, like, if you build like a corporation there, like you have to give them like 51 percent of like intellectual property because you're using their land. And it's kind of funny. And it's I realized my own hypocrisy in it is that's one of the things I loved about Trump was like 
if you're going to have your corporation headquartered in the United States, like you have to bring back like your overseas tax haven funds because you don't get to have a headquarters in a city protected by within the borders of the United States protected by the U.S. military. You don't get to get our basically security services and and then export everything. And it's like the one thing I really like about corporate headquarters to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because it's like the one thing I really liked about Trump that is like if you're going to be here, you're going to pay your share. The one thing I liked about him the most is the thing that's probably the most similar to the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> it's just like yeah. egg on my face. And of course, he, well, and of course, he was like that because <clears throat> before all of the other stuff, he was fundamentally a landlord. Yeah. And so you you're there. You are basically married to these properties yeah. that you own. Yeah. And you can't like move your base of operation. If you if you own a hundred slum, you know, developments in New York City, you can't say, well, my corporation is based in Vermont. New York City won't let you do that. Yeah, you know? yeah, and, and nor should, um, and nor should they. And that is, I mean, that is a, yeah, you can't, you can't be, you can't have, you can't run everything. You can't have the majority no. of your servers and headquarters of Facebook here and then technically be operating from – doesn't Facebook technically operate from Ireland? Isn't that technically – Yeah, I think they do. It's like there's like no, one it's, office. It's, it's, with which like is a, a total dodge. It's a total yeah. – it's like there's like there's like a one-room office with like a foldable chair and a printer. And it's like, no, that's Facebook headquarters. And it's like, well, what's everything I'm looking at in Silicon Valley? And they're like, oh, that's an offshoot of the – and it's like – yeah. You are technically protected no, like, by the there's, U.S. There's, Navy there and is Air Force. A, there is a residential house on the Isle of Man that is the <laughs> corporate headquarters for like 10,000 global corporations. Yeah. Yeah. They, that, that is their all of their official mailing address. Yeah. It's, and, and of course, none of them is actually there. It's a mail drop. What if America uh, annexes so, that island? <laughs> Fucking there. It's well, it's it. in the middle of the English Channel, so... <laughs> Brits might have something to say. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing is it would then come down to like, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing. But but but, but yeah, it's, it's you know we we have really gone off the deep end in toward this idea of corporate anarchy. Yeah, uh, and it's like there it's like, are a lot it's of like battle bots. In the way that it's like a battle bot, it's like their only thing is to win. And it's really fun to watch until it turns into just two perfect cubes that just face off. And it's like, well, where's the spinning yeah. flames and the and it's if the perfect well, you know the thing about battle bots is they're very highly regulated. Everything about battle bots is that right, in a well, particular all right, well, class. Fuck, all right, well fuck me. All right. <laughs> there are there are strict weight limits <clears throat> and you know, there there there's a lot of rules. The biggest one being the weight limit and so everything starts with the robot can't weigh more than a certain amount now if you notice in in the the ones where the house robots come and clean up the situation when the battle bots get stuck or something the house robots don't have to conform to the battle bot rules they're bigger they're more massive they have more systems you know, so they can basically warm up on the competitive robots because they're not confined to the limits of their class. And 
this is one of the reasons that you end up, one of the reasons the whole sport kind of petered out is that it turns out when you start getting to the, to the really, you know, fine edge of, of, of performance, there's only a few designs that are really optimal. So you yeah. get the wedges, yeah. you get, you know, so, so you get a few designs that everyone does because they've been proven to work like the wet, the flippable wedge. Yeah. You know, they can run, you know, upside down or right side up and it can go boom, to, to flip its opponent over. Uh, the ones with, you know, the, the spinning super massive wheel Okay, which is another thing because the sheer momentum will tear anything up if you manage to get it into place. Uh, and and you know there was a couple of others, and and you realize you you reached a point after a couple of years where these were the only designs you saw because they always won. You know, under the rules, there there wasn't a lot left to do except to take one of these fundamental designs and try to you know put your own little efficiency spin on it or something uh so that you know that's an example of where you know the it worked because it was regulated but then it didn't work because it was regulated so how do you apply that to businesses you know Really, are, are we doing it right, or are the Chinese doing it right? Really, neither of us is doing it right. If you if you if you look at it, we got problems yeah. in both spheres. Uh, then you've got the independent entities, particularly the ones that are large enough that they want to do business with China and the United States at the same time, who are just like they're fucked. Yeah. I I mean, you know, Facebook. And you know, Instagram is part of Facebook, Twitter, yeah. Google. They, these these guys are all like, you know, they're being squeezed because these other countries are starting to realize how much power their position represents, and they're starting to come to these companies and say, "You want to do business in our country, you need to follow our rules." Yeah. And so far. They've pretty much reacted by going, uh, beep, yeah. sure, yeah, whatever, whatever you say, boss, yeah, sure. Uh, and then, you know, but what's starting to happen now is that the people back here in the U.S. are getting wind of it and going, yeah, standing up for anything that we believe in over there. And they're like, well, we're standing up for the fact that we want to make money and we want these billion customers. <laughs> and the Americans are like, um, what? But it's just like Google canceling your channel. You know, it's it's a bullshit thing, which they're doing because they don't want to do it right. Yeah, they're doing, so yeah, they're doing. The, so they're doing it cheap, and the cheap thing to do is you have the AI listening just, in for just keywords, blanket dictation, and it's like, and and it hears too many of the wrong keywords. And it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. You know, so there, there you are, uh, and appealing to them is a waste of time because that involves right. yeah, they them assigning a human being, which is what they the exact thing that they don't want to do. 
So, uh, so where do you go with that? You know, it, it's, uh, you know, but it, it, it's become a real bad problem that so much of the global discourse is now concentrated in the hands of these four or five companies that are like everything. And, you know, if the government of the country that you live in leans on Facebook and says, uh, we can't have people saying that this rogue state of Taiwan is an actual country. You have to stop that. Well, you've got do what they say or lose a billion customers. Yeah. What's a company going to do? A company that is chartered to make, to money. make money. No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. It's a, uh, it's certainly, it's certainly always easier to easy to take the armchair, uh, free speech, and it's like, it's, it's. I'm allowed to have on whatever guests I want. Tommy, how come you don't have on, you know, bleeding heart X Y Z? I'm like, because that's not an interesting episode. And it's like, well, you should. And I'm like, well, fuck off. It's my podcast. And it's what I've always said, and I'd still say to you is. It's it's so long as I believe I should have control over the guests on my podcast, then I have to acknowledge that I'm a private entity, and thus mm-hmm. I call it Stockholm syndrome. But I, YouTube's allowed. But you're to fair about me. it, and you're you, honest you, about you, it. I mean, YouTube's you have al- me. Yeah, YouTube's allowed to ban me. I've I still say that as much mm-hmm. as I September nineteenth, twenty twenty one. As much as I fucking hate it, I still acknowledge mm-hmm. private company man do whatever the fuck they want. Raj. I gotta wrap this one up because I'm gonna shit myself, and um, can't have that. Can't have that. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. If we can now because I, I I think scat's probably not allowed on YouTube, seeing as we're not there anymore. You want to see the true free market of podcasts? I don't know what's Rumble's policy. <laughs> what's Rumble's policy on <laughs> today? Roger and I pushing the boundaries. We come back next week, ah. so we're banned from Rumble. <laughs> and, uh, if I get banned from Rumble. Then I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's time for an evaluation of a real. You know, there's this old-fashioned thing people used to do called having your own website. Well, eventually, Remember eventually, that was a thing. The end goal is Tommy Tube. That's the end goal. The end goal is Tommy Tube. So just fuck off. But Roger, I gotta run because there uh, there's an emergency. And uh, take care. God bless. Till next time. Recording Stay safe, stopped. everybody. Peace.